Now, could you open your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> Romans 6, 15 through 19 says this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a book by a conservative theologian uh, describing and denouncing what he called expressive individualism which is the modern philosophy of identity that has pervaded all areas of our culture but finds its fullest expression uh, among radical liberals. Expressive individualism. And then I closed that book, and I got in my car, and I turned on a podcast I like to listen to, and in that episode, a liberal journalist was describing and denouncing the American philosophy of rugged individualism, which has shaped our whole country but finds its fullest expression among American conservatives. Rugged individualism. And I laughed at myself as I thought, well, at least our country is united about something. We've got expressive individualism on the left, rugged individualism on the right, and the glaring commonality is what? Individualism. The ground we all have in common. Our shared American idolatry. The primacy of the individual. Despite all our differences, we are united in our self-centeredness. Expressive individualism slogans are be true to yourself, speak your truth, find yourself. It says look inside and find out who you are and live your most authentic self. Rugged individualism slogans are the self-made man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, don't tread on me. It says don't accept any handouts or impositions on my liberty. Expressive individualism on the left is all about freedom from constraints of tradition and conformity. Rugged individualism on the right is all about freedom from constraints of dependence and authority. And if you live in America, as I think all of us do, these ideas have influence over you to greater or lesser degrees. I bring all this up because I know and when we read this text, we tend to think there's a third option other than the two given to us in this passage. In our passage this morning, Paul says you are a slave and you will always be a slave. The only difference is who your master is. We don't generally deceive, de conceive of the dichotomy in these terms. We think I can be my own master and therefore be free. But God says that's not true. It's not. He either says I am your master or sin is your master. You're never your own master. 
In other words, you're never truly free, never free in the way we've come to think about freedom in modern times. But that doesn't mean you can't truly, deeply be free. We just need a new way of thinking about freedom. We've been fooled into thinking of freedom only in negative terms. Freedom from constraints. Freedom to live for myself, by myself. And such lies and longings are very ancient. The church father, St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, wrote his confessions. His autobiographical prayers recounting his journey to faith. And he wrote about how he too sought freedom from the removal of all constraints. He lived in selfish ambition, climbing the ladder of success, indulging every passion of his flesh. And he explains how such freedom started to feel like punishment. He says, I was tossed about and split and scattered. So freedom to be himself started to feel like losing himself. He was dissolving. His own identity slipping through his fingers. One commentator on uh, Augustine's confessions used the illustration of being a kid in an above-ground pool. When, When you keep bumping up against the walls, you start wishing they weren't there. But if in your rambunctiousness you succeed in knocking them down, you don't make the pool bigger. You make it disappear. And you're left in the soggy ruins. You're not more free to swim. You actually have lost your freedom in the obliteration of boundaries. Later, Augustine says that his freedom was that of a runaway. And I I love that image because have you ever run away as a kid? I I did once. Uh, I at least only once that I remember, it didn't last very long, and it was no real freedom. I I remember looking over my shoulder full of resentment and anxiety, exhausted, afraid, trying to deny it all, trying to convince myself this is liberation. That's the so-called freedom of a runaway. Augustine also calls it the shackles of gratification. He saw living for yourself as what it is, shackles, slavery, In this disillusionment, Augustine began to wonder whether freedom might be something other than absence of constraint or the multiplication of options. Not merely freedom to choose, because that's what got him in the mess in the first place, but freedom to choose the good. Freedom for something, for someone, rather than just running away from things, rather than running away from the clutches of conformity or authority, could true freedom, he began to wonder, be running into the arms of a father? Could his embrace be more freeing than stifling? Augustine came to see true freedom as, as not autonomy, but as dependence. Dependence on someone other than himself. And when you realize with Augustine that you need someone other than you, greater than you, beyond you, then you see that his presence and his constraints are much like those swimming pool walls, and you are the water. What you once thought of as confining, you begin to now see is holding you together. This is what Augustine said in one of my favorite passages from his confessions. Last quote from him, I promise. He said, I was torn in pieces in the inmost entrails of my soul until purified and molten by the fire of your love, he's talking to God, to flow together and merge into you, Then shall I find stability and solidity in you, in your truth, which imparts form to me. I love that. 
purified and molten in the fire of God's love. Then we flow into him and there find our stability and solidity and form in his truth. The slavery of sin tears us apart and dissolves our souls, but being slaves of God grants us form and freedom. Of course, this language is scandalous to our modern sensibilities. Being owned by anyone other than ourselves is an affront to our sense of autonomy and entitlement. We want to be our own person. But such a thing is an illusion. We are contingent beings. The first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism says it so beautifully. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is your only comfort in life and in death, that you belong to Christ. You are not your own. Amen. You are his. And when you receive this blessed truth, it is indeed a comfort. And he makes your heart whole in living for him. The option is not between being mastered or being self-directed. No, you will be mastered. What kind of master will you serve? Will you serve the one who truly owns you and, and, and then live in alignment with reality and goodness? Or will you serve the unnatural substitute master who hates your guts? Will you serve a master who wants to devour you or one who wants to love you? The first time sin is mentioned by name in scripture, it's portrayed as a, as a crouching beast ready to pounce on you and overpower you and destroy you. That's the way God warned Cain about sin. You may, may think of sin as just something people do, but the Bible again and again talks about it with much more insidious language. It's an enemy, a ravaging beast, a cruel slave master. It is active and evil and it will own you and oppress you and deceive you into thinking that you are somehow free. But you aren't. And the way Paul frames this dichotomy is that you're either serving God or serving sin. He doesn't just mean that at some point in the past you've publicly stated your, uh, your stance between the two at some point. He means how you actually live and feel and think in each moment. Because how we live our moments is how we live our days. And how we live our days is how we live our lives. Let us live our lives in faith. With hearts and lives aimed at God. Toward the master who doesn't devour and destroy his servants but elevates them to the status of, of sons and daughters who, whom he loves and cares for forever. He is an infinitely better master, far more freeing master. And the scandal of true freedom is not just that it involves a master, but it's also that it can't be achieved. This is an affront to us who are trained on self-discovery and self-actualization and self-empowerment and self-reliance. We want to earn and accomplish, but the freedom God offers is also free. It's a gift from him. It is grace. 
God, grace is a power that I couldn't have found in myself. Look at verse 17. Notice how Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. He thanks God for their obedience. Why would he thank God for the obedience of these people? Shouldn't he thank these people? When do you thank someone? When they do something, when they give something. That means this obedience that of these Christians is something God has done. It's a gift he has given. Consider this seriously. What if obedience isn't just performance you muster up or promise to God, but it is a gift he offers to you? Christian humility is learning to trust his power in us. He wants us to learn dependence on him instead of mere performance. I loved reading about there was, uh, the, story, the journey of Leslie Jameson to recovery through addiction. And she wrote about her experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said the big book of AA was initially called The Way Out. Out of what, she writes? Not just drinking, but the claustrophobic crawl space of the self. Through AA, she came to realize she needed something stronger than her own willpower. She says this about her own willpower. This willpower was a fine-tuned machine, fierce and humming. It had done plenty of things, gotten me straight A's, gotten my papers written, gotten me through cross-country training runs. But when I'd applied it to drinking, the only thing I felt was that it was turning my life into a small, joyless, clenched fist. Small and joyless. That's the obedience that comes from ourselves. But if you are familiar with AA, you know that it points participants to a higher power. And though she didn't have all that figured out, she wrote this. The higher power that turns sobriety into more than just deprivation was simply not me. That was all I knew. Yes, it's not you. That's a great way to put it. But it doesn't stay that simple, because his will becomes yours as you live, believing that you are fully and completely united with him. Amen. This is what Paul calls becoming obedient from the heart. That's the rest of verse 17, if you read the rest of it. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, what does that mean, to be obedient from the heart? The Bible talks about the heart a lot. I was reading a bunch of the places it talks about it a ton uh, through the Bible this week. And as I did, I saw that the heart is a, a source of our life, both physical and spiritual. It also houses our intentions and our will, our thoughts, our hopes, our fears, our desires, our passions, our beliefs and our doubts, our emotions, our joys and our sorrows our courage and our cowardice, our allegiance or betrayal. It's who we most deeply are, our whole self. It is the center of the human existence. Like Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. It is with our heart that we love. Like in the Shema, the, in that, that uh, prayer in scripture that uh, Jewish people pray every day, the, that we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. But the scriptures also vividly portray a problem with the human heart because of our servitude to sin. Jeremiah says it like this, the heart is deceitful 
above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah understood that our heart is fundamentally broken, which means that at the core of our humanity, we are corrupted, deceived, and sick. We are heart sick. We are deceived where we think of slavery as freedom. We think of failure as success and evil as good. Jeremiah saw this. He, he had seen a whole generation turn away from God and give themselves over to rampant wickedness, doing unspeakably evil things as though they were good. The fun, this fundamental heartbrokenness leads another prophet to reveal what our hearts really need, a fundamental renovation. God promised through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new heart. A new heart that's actually more in keeping with our humanity, with what we were made to be. Did you notice how he says, I'll take out your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's saying stone doesn't belong in flesh. Flesh belongs in flesh. So the heart that you have now is desperately sick. That heart that Jeremiah talked about. It doesn't belong there. It's not in keeping with who I made you to be. As an image of God. I will make you a truer human. And not only that. I will give you my very own spirit for extra measure. To bind myself to you. Living within you to make certain that you will flourish in the freedom of my ways. Walking in obedience from the heart. And this prophecy is fulfilled through Jesus. This is why Jesus, the good news of Jesus is such good news. He entered this world through the purity of heaven, born of a virgin, born with an uncorrupted heart. Entering our world a free man. The first free man, free of all sin since Adam. In fact, Paul calls him the second Adam. But Adam number two would succeed where the first Adam failed. He would do much more than that too. He would give his freedom to all of us. He would share his heart with all who trust him. He came into this world to become a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life that he has. He took our humanity and he took our sin in order to give us his righteousness and his divine sonship. I love the way 1 Peter 2 says it. He committed no sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus lived free from sin and bound to the Father. But he chose to bear our sin and its consequences in order to liberate us from its shackles. And what this, that's what this whole chapter of Romans 6 is about. It's how he shares his righteousness and his heart with us through his spirit. As we are united with him in faith. We share his death and we share his life. We share his freedom. We share his love. We have a new heart. A new spirit. Let me remind you of the last part of that 
that first answer of the Heidelberg Catechism because I just love it so much. He says, it says, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So what does it mean to obey from the heart then? That word from is important. Obedience is coming from this integrating center, from the wholeness of who we are. It's arising out of our truest, deepest selves, out of our desires and affections, our will and intentions and thoughts, our authentic self, all of you. It's, this obedience bubbles up from the new you rather than obedience that is compelled from outside of you. C.S. Lewis offered some sage advice to children about this. He received a lot of fan letters, as you can imagine, from children after he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and he responded to many of them and corresponded even with a lot of them. And to one little girl named Joan, he wrote this, A perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God or of other people, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs, our own loves, tastes, habits can do the journey on their own. I think in that letter, he's trying to explain to a child what it means to obey from the heart. Duty is a crutch, one that children in particular are in need of. But love is the free stride of the uncrippled and healthy heart. Crutches are good, though, right? Crutches are good when when and where they are needed. And duty is often good and honorable in this world of temptation. But it is the obedience of love that we ought to aim for. Obedience from the heart. This is what Paul means later in Romans when he says that love is the fulfilling of the law. There's a book by the philosopher James K.A. Smith with a great title. I love books with great titles. It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. In that book, he explains this. He says, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. Jesus is a teacher, he says, who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. And if you're saying, Jay, I understand the obedience of duty, That's neat and clean. Gives me something to do. I can make a list and try and follow it. But if you're saying it's more complex than that, that I have to have a heart that loves the right things in the right way, well, that can't simply just be generated by an act of the will. And that's not how love works. If I can't do it, what do I do? I'm glad you asked. You trust the one who can change hearts. There's only one who can. I want you to feel a little desperate, needy, so that you turn to God to shape you. You have to be captivated by the goodness and greatness of God. You have to grasp and be gripped by Christ's amazing and gracious love for you. His self-sacrificing love. You have to have an active dependence on God's power and spirit to work in you to develop rightly ordered love. Only then will you live in the freedom of obedience from the heart, which is true freedom. 
to pursue what you love. To live in love is true liberation, but only it's only liberation if that love leads to life rather than destruction. Falling from a building could feel a lot like flying for a few seconds, but it's not freedom because of its end. There's a wonderful connection in our language between the different meanings of the word bound. Bound means being tethered or tied to something, right? Like the demoniac that Jesus healed. It says he was often bound with chains. But bound also means being aimed somewhere with an expectation to arrive. Like the excellent movie, Homeward Bound. And this connection is the truth that Paul is showing us in this text. He's telling us that the master we are bound to determines what we are bound for. Being bound to sin makes us bound for death. Being bound to God makes us bound for life. The question is not, will you serve a master? But what kind of master will you serve? Love the master who loves you back. Commit to the one who's committed himself to you. Love, it binds itself. That's what it does. That's what true love does. Love commits and gives up freedom in that way. But here's the incredible thing, is that when we bind ourselves in love to God, we know that he has first done that for us. Amen. He freely commits himself to us, binds himself to us, forever limited by his love for us, if you want to call it that. Because through his love and free choice, through his binding promise of grace, he forsakes the freedom to leave us or forsake us. He willingly binds himself to us. He did not have to form such a covenant. With us, but he chose to Thank you, Lord. in love. This is the kind of master we serve. And so we do serve him because we love him, because he loved us. And God's shown all of his cards, he's put everything on the table. He holds nothing back and banks all of his hope for our sanctification in us knowing and believing the truth, saying, what if I tell them who they really are now? What if I take away any element of fear and tell them that I will always love them, that I love them right now with the same love I share with my son? What if I tell them that I keep no list of past offenses, that they are righteous right now? What if I tell them they have a new nature? They are saints. What if I tell them I actually live in them? My spirit, my love, my power at work in them now. What if they were convinced that bad circumstances are not my way of getting back at them for sin? What if I tell them that obedience is not about their self-effort, but trusting me to live my life in them and through them? This is what Romans 6 is about. The truth of who we are in Christ and believing it as a way of life. Like the caterpillar has butterfly DNA. God is wired into a creature looking nothing like a butterfly, perfectly complete butterfly DNA. And a butterfly identity. It's because the caterpillar is a butterfly in essence that it will one day display the behavior and attitudes and attributes of a butterfly. The caterpillar matures into what is already true about it. God has given us the DNA of righteousness. We are saints, not just saved sinners. 
God knows our DNA. He knows that we are Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen. And he's calling us to join him in what he knows is true. Yes, Lord. He wants us to know it, believe it, and live obediently from the heart. Amen. We obey from the heart. And obedience to Jesus, it does look like giving up freedom to the world. It does. In our love for him, we trust in his love enough for us that we are willing to go wherever he leads us to go. I recently listened to a story that I thought was a great picture of this. Let me tell you this story. I was painting my house and listening to an audiobook by uh, George MacDonald uh, called The Princess and the Goblin. It's a children's fairy tale. And the main character is a princess named Irene. I would have probably pronounced it Irene if I was reading it, but the audiobook reader pronounced it Irene, so I'll go with that. And she, so Irene has come to meet and love a magical and mysterious great-great-great-grandmother who, in her castle who gives her a ring that's connected to an invisible thread. And the grandmother told her, if you ever find yourself in any danger, you must take off your ring and put it under your pillow of your bed, and then you must lay your finger upon the thread and follow it wherever it leads you. But remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. Then in a later chapter, Irene becomes frightened, so she puts the ring under her pillow as she was told and begins to follow the thread. And she's shocked that it doesn't just lead right up to her grandmother's room where she thought it would go. Uh, but it leads out of the castle altogether. And, and along the way, she realizes that what had frightened her in the first place was just a dog and a cat having a little tiff. And she wasn't in any danger. But she keeps following the thread because that's part of the deal. And she did so happily because the countryside was beautiful. And, but then she started to think, man, I'm an awful way away from home. And then she shuddered to realize that the thread led her into a hole in the mountain. She didn't hesitate, though. Right into the hole she went. And she went further and further into the darkness of the great hollow mountain. She kept thinking more and more about her grandmother and all that she had said to her and how kind she had been and how beautiful she was and all about her lovely room and the fire of roses and the great lamp that set its light through the stone walls. And she became more and more sure that the thread could not have gone there itself and that her grandmother must have sent it. But it tried her dreadfully when the path went down very steep. Shall I ever get back? She thought over and over again. In a hundred directions she turned, obedient to the guiding thread. And when the thread went through a heap of stones piled high one, for one terrible moment, she thought that her grandmother had forsaken her. The thread had gone where she could no longer follow it. It had brought her into a horrible cavern and left her there. She was forsaken, indeed, she thought. She threw herself upon the heap and began to cry. Then the thought struck her. Well, at least she could follow the thread backwards, right? And thus get out of the mountain and go home. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. She could only follow it forwards. And after a good cry, she began trying to move the rocks. And after a long while, she found that she could move the rocks with a lot of effort and then she found behind the rocks her friend Curdy, who in the previous chapter had been imprisoned there by goblins. And he says, how did you ever come here, Irene? And she says, by my, my great-grandmother. My great-great-grandmother sent me, and I think I found out why, to get you out. 
And together, they follow the thread. Though it takes some convincing because Curdie can't feel it. And he has to just trust the princess. And it continues to lead them in counterintuitive directions and, and more trouble ensues. I won't tell you all about that, but it ultimately brings them to safety and to her grandmother. And I imagine George MacDonald wrote that story knowing how it often feels to obey God. Sometimes obeying God feels like going into a goblin hole in a mountain. But maybe it's not just about you. Maybe there's someone in that hole. Follow the thread. They may not feel the thread. They may want to go another way, but we have no help to offer them other than following the thread. Maybe you want to go backwards, but the moment you try to go backwards away from what he calls you to, the thread disappears. You, there's no help in going the other way. When you turn away from obedience, you are unmoored, unanchored. Follow the thread forward. Maybe you need to sit and cry at the obstacles. But then remember that as long as you're holding it, he is holding it with you. Amen. He is with you. Get up and follow the thread. In the dark cavern, you might be frightened, but just like she was, and she remembered the love of her great-great-grandmother and persevered, we too remember the goodness of the one who has called us, and we follow the thread. When Irene starts to see that there is purpose to her detours, she becomes invigorated. Even though she doesn't have the whole picture yet, and there's still more trouble ahead, and you will too. As you follow the thread, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. Sometimes choosing to pursue reconciliation of a messed up relationship can seem like choosing to drive into the eye of a storm, can't it? But follow the thread. Sometimes having integrity and honesty and compassion can lead to what looks like losing while others are getting ahead. Follow the thread. Sometimes choosing God's will for your relationships or your career or whatever can look like the road away from happiness or fulfillment or away from what seems most effective or efficient or practical. But follow the thread. And to start something new for God, for the glory of God and the good of others, might seem scary or daunting, follow the thread. He gave it to you because he loves you. And he is ultimately leading you to himself and to life and to greater righteousness and justice for others along the way, along the journey. Think of the love of him who holds it with you and follow the thread. And when you obey from the heart, God gets the glory because that kind of heart is a gift from him. Amen. This week I read a story about people following the thread. It was about the persecuted church in China. A journalist was interviewing pastors who had their, their churches shut down, didn't have, know where they were going to meet next Sunday. Some who were hauled into police stations multiple times, others who were being prosecuted, and one Chinese pastor said, I pray to God, I am willing to be a chained pastor for you. And the minute I make that prayer, I am free. He gets it. One of the most believed lies today is this. You are your own and you belong to yourself. And if that's true, you're on the hook 
for your own joy, your own protection, everything. To develop your own identity and manufacture some significance out of your life, you're on the hook. But if you belong to God, he's on the hook for all of that. And he's infinitely more capable. He wants to be on that hook. And we do belong to God. And we will only experience freedom when we live in the truth of that belonging. Lose your life and you will find it, as our Lord once said. Trust in Jesus. And the moment you do, each moment you do, you are free. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to the truth that we do not and cannot belong to ourselves and the beautiful freedom that comes with not being our own master. We thank you for wanting us to flourish and for going to such lengths to free us from the shackles of sin and for giving us new hearts in Christ. We thank you for your spirit who leads us into obedience I pray that we will not be turned off or away by your call to obedience and that we wouldn't be put off by the duty to obey. But I also pray that we would move beyond mere duty into the freedom of love. To love you with such pure and whole hearts that we love others more than we love ourselves. This is the hope you give to us and we thank you for such hope. And we pray with Jesus Amen.